It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Is God Happy With My Attitude? Part 2. Coming up in this episode, Jesus taught seven simple Beatitudes as he began his Sermon on the Mount. These lessons are not only intertwined, but they're also necessary building blocks for every disciple of Christ. The thing is, these teachings lead us to a massive world-changing conclusion that most readers completely miss. Listen for the full details. Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome everyone, I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Thankful to be here. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Hi, gentlemen. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? Matthew 5, 1 and 2. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountains, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he changed everything. All that the people of Israel had ever heard before this was related to the Jewish law, and much of that teaching had been corrupted by their religious leadership. Jesus sat on a hillside teaching his disciples, allowing anyone to listen who had a mind to do so, as he unfolded transformational instructions for becoming a true disciple of his. The import of the simple statements he began his sermon with, which are now known as the Beatitudes, is eternal. Last week, we began to unpack these Beatitudes and covered the first three of the seven. Here in part two, we're going to cover the last four. What deep lessons and instructions did Jesus use to describe his own character as a model for ours? So to begin with, we need to step back and do a recap of part one, the overview, and those first three Beatitudes. So Jonathan, let's start with recapping those first three Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five, verses three to five. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. So the word for blessed means being touched or guided by God's favor, which means we personally have God's attention. It means that we can be supremely blessed. And that is a a powerful thought, to have God's attention and to be a supremely blessed one before him. So now let's review each of the first three Beatitudes we talked about last week. And this helps us to become one who can be blessed in the sight of God. The first Beatitude. To be poor in spirit is to empty oneself of ego. It is to be humble, and that means having a realistic understanding of yourself, including both positive and negative traits. Such humility was the deepest foundation of Jesus' own character and should be ours as well. To have such humility before God is the foundational basis for being called to be given the kingdom of heaven. And to mourn is to grieve. It is to be willing to be vulnerable to the pains of our own sins and losses, as well as the sins and losses of the brotherhood and the world around us. Such vulnerability only comes through humility and empties us of our own ways of self-protection and allows us to be comforted from above. Jesus himself grieved over the sins and losses of this world and paid the price for their healing. 
To be gentle is to be meek and teachable. Jesus is our example, for as a man, he learned by his experiences and only did the will of God. Such teachableness must have a base foundation of humility, of knowing who we truly are. Further, a willingness to be vulnerable to our grief provides the openness necessary for a genuinely meek and teachable character. It's only through meekness that we can learn to be reconcilers with Jesus of the world back to God. So we take a look at those first three Beatitudes that we talked about last week, and we put them in order and expanded them and and looked at them and really understood that they're more than just inspirational sayings. So now let's continue this week with the last four Beatitudes. Jonathan, Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So we've got those next four Beatitudes coming. And we're going to review these Beatitudes, the last four, the way we did the first three. There's three basic facets we're going to look at. First, we're going to be sharing some very short readings from the book Moments with the Savior by Ken Geyer to show how these Beatitudes actually provide us with a word picture, a word photograph of Jesus. And second, understanding the sense of empty required by the true disciple of Christ in order to copy the master. And finally, we'll see how each beatitude is a cumulative stepping stone to the next and why each foundational lesson is necessary for our development. So with all of that said, with all of that put in place, with our our understanding of how we're going about this, let's get started with the fourth beatitude. Jonathan, let's go to Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, let me tell you what hunger and thirst means in the Greek. Thirst simply means you're thirsty, you need to drink. But hunger, now this is powerful. It means to toil, pine for, famish, and crave. That's pretty big. So, so to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to be on a vital search for those things which are genuinely in accord with the will and character of God himself so that we might be nourished, so we might be able to be fed. Make no mistake, hunger, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not merely hungering after biblical knowledge. It's not merely thirsting after correct scriptural interpretation. Now look, These things do matter. They matter deeply. But the righteousness here encompasses the moral fabric of daily living, a God-honoring life. So it's more than just what you know. It's about how you live. And we can see that through an example of Jesus from the book Moments with the Savior by Ken Geyer. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. So much so that in the wilderness he refused the loaves offered by Satan, and on the cross the wine offered him by the soldier. Instead, he waited to be fed by his father's hand, even if that meant forty days of stones or six hours of fevered thirst. His bread was to do the father's will. His drink, the cup offered him in Gethsemane. Now we've all been thirsty, we've all been hungry, we get it. So when I'm hungry, especially if I'm trying not to eat, all I can think about is food, (laughs) the smell of it, the texture, the taste, I get obsessed. So Jesus gave us this brilliant illustration to explain that longing that we should have for meaningful contact with God and to discern his will for us. And we each need to ask ourselves, does my head hit the pillow and I didn't even pray once or think of God and Jesus and what they've done for me? 
do I have an appetite for righteousness? Meaning, do I desire spiritual things? And if I have that appetite, what do I do to satisfy that longing? So hungering and thirsting after righteousness is a big deal. It has to be something that is absorbing our daily Christian walk. So let's focus a little bit more on Jesus again. Jesus' own life powerfully relayed the depth of the moral fabric of this righteousness that we, we, we talked about just before the soundbite. There's this moral fabric of righteousness that drove him and needs to drive us. Prophetically, let's look at Jesus through Psalm chapter 40, verses 7 through 10. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken out your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. So Jesus gives us a pattern of six things to follow. You know, what does that look like? One, Jesus said, I delight to do God's will. Well, that should be our heart condition also. Second, he said, your word is in my heart. Well, we need to study the Bible and meditate on it. Third, Jesus said, share the good news with God's people. Well, why? So we can remind and encourage the brotherhood. Fourth, Jesus said, your, righteous, your righteousness, God, is within my heart. For us, we need to let our light shine. Fifth, he adds, I will witness to God's faithfulness and salvation. So we should give hope to all those around us. And sixth, Jesus showed God's loving kindness and truth. So our focus to the brotherhood is to remind and encourage them with God's loving kindness and truth. So, Jonathan, you pulled a lot out of that prophetic verse, Psalm 40, verses 7 through 10, but it, it displays the hungering and thirsting for righteousness that Jesus lived. It shows us plainly who he was, what he did, and what was driving him. You know, what, what hungers drive us? Well, we know what hunger drove Jesus. How do we apply the sense of being empty as a true disciple of Christ in relation to hungering and thirsting after righteousness? So in the first three Beatitudes, we talked about a sense of being empty. So with hungering and thirsting for righteousness, what's this sense of empty? Well, it's simple. If you're hungry, that means you're empty. I mean, you just need to be refilled. So the big question, and Julie, you've already talked about is, what should we be filled with? What will satisfy our hunger? Not just any old hunger, but our hunger, our spiritual hunger. Well, we know the answer, and we're going to look at it. John chapter 6, verses 49 to 51. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Yeah, the, the scripture is really cool because it gives us a sense. He, he goes back to Israel in the wilderness and how God fed them every single day, every single day with manna. Six days they were to pick up manna, and on that sixth day they picked it up, up for the seventh day. And, and the point is he nourished them and he didn't allow them to starve. He always allowed them to be fed. And he says, I am the bread from heaven. So he's saying... I'm your manna. 
That's what he's really say, saying. Jesus plainly stated that as, that as his disciples, we will satisfy our hunger for godliness through him. Okay, so how, how do we do that? What does that mean? Okay, so in other words, it's not like eating a steak. Right. Okay, but what we're talking about is spiritual hunger. We're talking about a spiritual life. We're talking about developing a life that looks like Jesus, that acts like Jesus, that sounds like Jesus. And to do that, we need to feed on his character, his words, his example, his teachings, and his, and what he put in place, because he is the centerpiece of God's kingdom. He is the centerpiece of the, the plan of the ransom and restitution. So we feed on that, and we learn to be like him, because that's what all of the Beatitudes are about. So this is spiritual food we're talking about. And let's, let's further that with John 4, 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become a well uh, in him, a well of water springing up to eternal life. So here in John 4, it's saying Jesus satisfies our thirst as an endless fountain of water, and water often represents truth in Scripture. Look no further than him. You know, and, and, and the thing that when Jesus describes the water being given— that he says you'll never thirst again. It's always flowing water. And because flowing water is naturally filtered, it's a natural self-filtration system. When water flows, it continues to purify itself. And so when Jesus gives us a sample of the water of truth, it's always flowing because it's always pure. That's what we want to be fed and, and thirsted. We want our thirst quenched with the purity of truth. Well, being empty is having space for the right things empty of self-will, to be filled with Jesus. Exactly, exactly. You can't have room for the good stuff if you're full of the bad stuff already. You know, that's why your parents always said, you know, you can't eat your dessert before you eat the nutrition. You have to have the nutrition. <laughs> so, okay, so Julie, let, where, where are we going from here? So our, our, our last question on this is, how does hungering and thirsting after righteousness fit into the cumulative steps of the Beatitudes? And our human nature hungers and thirsts, which means longs for things like comfort. We long for answers, stability, to be happy, to have abundance. And to hunger and thirst for righteousness means we're going higher beyond those basic needs. And to some of us, this isn't natural. And it starts with that strong foundation of humility we talked about last week, being vulnerable in mourning for the inequities of life and just how far short we ourselves fall from the perfect standards. And then having that meek and teachable character. So hungering and thirsting for righteousness brings us before God's will for our answers rather than bringing us before our own will for answers. This is the only path on which we can be truly satisfied. Well, what's your diet? We eat the words of God and drink the truth. And, and, and really, and, and it's not just the—it's it, drinking what they mean. It's drinking where they bring us and how they will change our lives. Our hunger and thirst for righteousness is a lifelong process of being fed, growing, and then being fed again. A couple of scriptures on that. On that. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So we are looking to become children of God in the fullest sense, and we will see him as he is. You know, when we looked at this scripture, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be satisfied. 
the satisfaction of being uh, with God is, is a satisfaction beyond comprehension. And let's go to Psalm 1715. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. So the satisfaction with the likeness of God through Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's not an earthly satisfaction. It's something much bigger than that. So Jonathan, being one who can be blessed, what do we have? To hunger and thirst after righteousness is to understand that we cannot be ultimately complete and satisfied in our present sinful earthly condition. Such satisfaction can only come through Jesus for he was and is the only genuine link to eternal life for all of us. Drawing our nourishment from him prepares us for eternal fulfillment. So the idea here is to hunger and thirst after righteousness. It is a lifestyle of seeking after God through Christ. That's exactly what it is. Make no mistake about it. We need to rise up to such a lifestyle and change those habits of ours so that we can be in focus with that kind of thinking. So if you're going to hunger and thirst after anything, why not make it the most God-honoring things possible? Now that we understand the importance of godly righteousness, what do we look to to develop next? The relentless pursuit of righteousness is a life-changing experience. The clearer our focus on this, the more we realize that it's only available to us as a result of God's own mercy towards us. We need to never forget that imperfect humanity is locked out of God's eternal grace without God's mercy. And that's where we go next. After hungering and thirst after righteousness, the next beatitude is all about mercy. Jonathan, Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And to be merciful is to be compassionate. Okay. Mercy and compassion, interchangeable. That's important. Compassion is the definition of mercy. So, so to be merciful or compassionate is to express kindness beyond what fairness calls for. There could be no mercy if not for justice, as it is undeserved compassion upon one deserving a negative consequence. Compassion, therefore, relieves pain. It relieves suffering, and it relieves misery. And episode 1019 asked and answered a very important question. Is mercy compatible with justice? So to hear more, type 1019 in the search bar at ChristianQuestions.com or the Christian Questions app in your app store. So now let's take a look at mercy in relation to Jesus himself with another excerpt from Moments with the Savior by Ken Geyer. He was merciful, moved with compassion on the crowds that flocked around him like so many fearful sheep in desperate search of a shepherd. Wherever he went, he stretched out his hand, gathering them to himself, nourishing them, binding up their wounds. And it's a very simple statement there. Jesus lived mercy. That's really what we're, we're hearing. That's really what we see. When you look at the life of Jesus, that's what, you, what we understand. Jesus' own mercy was exp expressed regularly and in a variety of ways. First, he lived and taught compassion as, as a simple manner of how to live. That, it was just a matter of, look, this is how you live. This is what you're supposed to do. Don't be thinking about other things unless you're thinking about this as well. We see this in Matthew 9, verses 11 to 13. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, 
Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to the righteous, but sinners. You know, when the Pharisees heard the words, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, they knew those words because it is found in Hosea 6, verse 6. Jesus was trying to teach them to have compassion in their hearts for others because God is compassionate. Jesus was merciful even when he's angry with the Pharisees. He was trying to show them the great responsibility they had of the people and the grave error of their ways. So his compassion was far deeper and far more well expressed than we would generally think. It, it just, it's just a big, big thing. Jesus was known throughout the land as a man of compassion. I mean, his reputation was, oh, he's the compassionate one. People often cried out to him for help, and Jesus always responded. One, just one example, Luke 17, 12 to 14. As he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy or have compassion on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. You know, and we know what happened next. Only one of them, of the, one of the 10, returned to thank him after he was healed. But that's one example. Jesus, have compassion, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped, and he was compassionate. That gives us a real strong sense of his character. And here, here's a question. Think. Think about this. How often did, you, did Jesus receive mercy, and how often did Jesus give mercy? Jonathan, Julie, any, any thoughts on that? Well, he gave it all the time. But, you know, the only thing I can think of is what about Simon the Syrian that carried his cross? Maybe? Is, is that well, showing compassion? I think it was. It, it's an, now, he was pressed into service, you know, because the crucifixion had to go, but he did it. It was an act of compassion because he was a beaten down, bloodied mess of a human being. And he had no strength left, literally. And so there was compassion. But through his entire ministry, you don't see him receiving it, but you always see him giving it. And so the imbalance of this equation reveals his heart for his mission and fulfilling the will of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we've been talking about compassion, but being merciful also involves forgiveness and giving others the benefit of the doubt. I think these days we all seem to be so touchy. We're easily offended, and we're quick to think that we're being disrespected. And one thing I'm trying to do within my Christian fellowship is assign positive spiritual intent. So when those around me say or do something that seems a little off and starts to push my buttons a little bit, you know, I want to assume that they're coming from a place of love and that they want what's spiritually best for me as the baseline of how I'm going to respond. We're all struggling to perfect our characters. And we would all be perfect if we could. Right. And none of us can read the other's heart either. So that's a good exercise in being compassionate. Julie, blessed are the compassionate, for they will receive compassion. That's what this beatitude is all about. How do we apply the sense of being empty as a true disciple of Christ in relation to being merciful? So we've every beatitude we look at, what, is it, what does emptiness have to do with it? Well, let's think this through. To be genuinely merciful is to be truly compassionate, or to be truly compassionate is to be empty. 
How so? Well, it's to be emptied of pettiness, emptied of self-serving ego, emptied of, of, of human opinion, emptied of, of the clamor for personal rights and acknowledgement. It is in this emptied and selfless state that we can now be in position to receive the spiritual gift of mercy, which lasts for eternity. So we have to be emptied to receive God's mercy so we can be empty of ourselves to give God's mercy. You have to have that emptiness and get all of that other stuff out of the way. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. This is taken from the New King James Version. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And in one sense, I think the merciful are emptying themselves from upholding the principle of an eye for an eye that they might otherwise be entitled to or feel that they are they deserve. Mercy is so closely tied to that forgiveness. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive others. Yeah, you, you really, you're not going to have real clear-cut forgiveness without having that clear-cut compassion driving it. And again, blessed are the merciful. What do they receive? They shall receive mercy. Do you want mercy and, and compassion from God? Well, then we be merciful. We certainly do. Right. So, so be merciful in your daily life. Now, Julie, next question. How does being merciful fit into those cumulative steps of the Beatitudes? Because remember, we're looking at the Beatitudes not just as these individual things, not these randomly placed things, but a cumulative process. So first we have the mercy of Jesus upon our lives. And humility, which was the first Beatitude, recognizes that as we can now embrace the grief of our experiences and grow into a meek and teachable disciple. These are the Beatitudes building on, on one another. Teachability feeds hunger for righteousness, which in turn opens our eyes to the magnificence of mercy. And make no mistake, mercy is a magnificent characteristic to display. It is something wonderful to receive, and it's just as wonderful to give. Prayer is a vital part of our ability to attain and retain a compassionate spirit. And that's why it's called going before the, quote, throne of grace as we receive unmerited favor and mercy by going before God. We see this in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You notice oftentimes our prayers are more intense when our time of need is greater. What we're looking for is God's mercy and God's grace. And if we can learn to receive God's mercy and grace, the next thing we need to do is learn to apply it and then apply it to others. Blessed are the merciful. So if we continue to apply God's mercy and grace to others, he can further his mercy and grace to us. To, main, to maintain a compassionate approach to others, we need continual reminders that we live according to a higher spiritual standard and not our own comfortable 
human standards. We all have human standards, and they're very comfortable, and they're very, that we fit just so nicely into them, and, we're, and you know, we've, you know, you've worn the seat out, so when you sit down in it, it just fits to your body, and it contours so nicely, and if you have your favorite chair, it's like, ah, that's our human standards, but our, our higher spiritual standards have to be something bigger than that. This is really aptly expressed in Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So, you know, our, our, our comfortable human standards are like, Lord, should I forgive him seven times? Count them seven. I got to use two hands for that. I mean, it's like a million forgivenesses, right? It's like I've forgiven him again and again and again and again and again. I mean, where do I stop? And Jesus' answer is so profound, up to 70 times seven. See, our concept is comfortable for us. He's had enough mercy. But in Jesus' <laughs> eyes, we're all sinners and we continually need more. Each of the Beatitudes contributes to our spiritual transformation, but they really grow through the practice of mercy. The Old Testament word for mercy in Hebrew is derived from a root word meaning to stoop down or to bend in kindness. Stooping down implies humility and meekness of spirit. And and this reminds me of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And the compassion part of mercy implies that we already have an element of sorrow and mourning for the plight of another. And certainly hungering and thirsting after righteousness means that we recognize God as our loving and very merciful heavenly father you have to recognize god as the father and know that this is where it all comes from so we can learn to be that way with others so jonathan becoming one who can be blessed what do we have to be merciful is to have an acute sense of the challenges and heartaches of those around you it is to observe these things and to act on these things not with judgment or minimization but with godly love and grace Being treated with compassion gives people a very real sense of who God really is. What a blessed way to live. And as a practical example of living in a merciful, compassionate way, it reminds me of when you were going through an extensive house renovation, Jonathan, your contractor had some health issues and there were a lot of things in that house that weren't finished yet. You were paying him a good sum of money. Nothing was happening, but your first instinct was compassion. And I think that was a really nice example for me. Well, his health and his family were the most important thing, uh, not things of inconvenience or, or things not done. Uh, they didn't matter. We are blessed to have them in our lives. They're a wonderful example of doing the right things, even through difficult experiences. Putting pressure on them would have been wrong. We're thankful that his health is improving and uh, they're very special to us. But, but, you know, it's putting things in perspective that's not the natural human perspective. And that's what the Beatitudes are clearly all about, from the first through the seventh. It's about learning to live in a Christ-like fashion by doing things that are above the normal way of doing them because we're following after Jesus. So treating others with compassion is to be truly a representative of Jesus. After all, when was he ever not compassionate? To live with compassion is to clearly walk towards Jesus. What is the next step this sets up for us? To be known as a merciful person is to be known as someone who people are drawn to. This characteristic exhibits a sense of being safe to be around. Building on this, 
is the next beatitude, which is being pure in heart. And this is a giant step. Being pure in heart is a giant step toward complete discipleship. It is a step that focuses all we have already learned on God's greatest glory. So, Jonathan, our next beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, the word for pure means clean, literally or figuratively. Okay, and we've got to remember that because that's an important aspect as we go through this discussion. So to be pure in heart, to be clean in heart, is to be driven by intentions that are uncontaminated by earthly ills. It is to have Jesus' own conscience be the primary influence for what we truly desire to happen. Think about What's the primary influence for what you want to have happen? Usually it's our own desire, our own will. But to have Jesus' conscience be our conscience, that's being pure in heart. For imperfect followers of Jesus, purity of heart does not always translate into purity of action. However, having a pure heart is our best chance to live with pure actions. So I'm just going to jump in here with a warning because this pure in heart is not for the casual Christian. We have to work up to this one, which is why we've had all that practice with those previous Beatitudes. It's not easy trying to live pure in an impure world. So many things can contaminate us. And who's really excited about examining those deep recesses of our hearts to make sure that even if we do or say the right things, the expected things, that our motives are 100% pure. Ugh. The, seeing those little dark parts of the heart isn't something we like to take a look at, but we've got to get in there. Yeah, you know, it, it's like cleaning the filter for an, an, an air filtration <laughs> right. system. It's like you Ew. can never get all the dust out, and then it's muddy and mucky, but you have to keep working on it because those little things are the things that can hurt us. So let, let's take a first first take a look at Jesus' own period of heart. Again, Moments with the Savior by Ken Geyer, a quick, quick excerpt. He was pure in heart. Someone once said that purity of heart was to will one thing. That was Jesus' heart. He was so unalloyed from the baser metal of personal ambition that Satan could dangle nothing before him to cause him to defect from his father. And I, and I like that. To be pure in heart is to will one thing. To not have it all mixed up with other things, but to have one thing. And for Jesus, it was the will of God. Jesus' own purity of heart was perhaps the most obvious aspect of his character. He did nothing without his pure heart driving him, and he taught us to seek to do the same. And when you think about the life of Jesus, you read every word written about the life of Jesus, you can't find a single moment in which Jesus' pure heart wasn't leading him. There is not a millisecond where he is not driven by that pure heart. Let's go back to John chapter 15, verses 12 to 15, to look at Jesus and his pure heart. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So Jesus is exhibiting this, this very, very plain statement. He has no agenda except the will of his Father. He, there's no slight turn to the right. There's no slight turn to the left. There's no slight hesitation to move forward. It's all straight and clear. Jesus' pure heart was a truth-driven, evil-repulsing, hope-filled, 
people-building example of what goodness is and what's required to be a faithful follower. What a blessed way to live. Well, let's expand on a few of these. Rick, you said Jesus's pure heart was evil repulsing. Sin should be repulsive to a pure heart, to those who love righteousness. The ugliness of sin and how it destroys people should make us long to do better. And you said his heart was people building. And this applies in one sense in that the words of Jesus were always uplifting. Our hearts must be kept so pure that there's no danger that we're going to tear each other down with our words. And this applies face to face. It applies on social media. And when we talk about someone to other people, that's sometimes difficult. We like to gossip. And no matter what we do, there's no way we could have complete pure heart. We are thankful God looks on the purity of our will intent or our purpose. I think another way to express the Beatitudes would be, blessed are the honest hearted, those who have absolutely the right intentions. We want purity in the sense of transparency and truthfulness. I see it a little bit like a compass, you know, points to true north. In this case, that would be righteousness. So we might have this sudden or strong temptation that through our weakness moves the needle to the left or to the right, but hopefully it recovers to its normal position of righteousness and truth really quickly. And so our goal is to make sure that it doesn't go so far out that the position is not recoverable. So by looking at all those quick little statements that I made, you, you, you paused and considered what it really means and what Jesus looks like with his pure heart. Now we've got to refocus ourselves on us. How do we apply the sense of being empty as a true disciple of Christ in relation to being pure in heart? Well, as we've been talking about, a true and sincere follower of Christ is going to strive to have that cleansed, pure heart, empty of malice, hatred, resentment, they're going to be ready to fill it with all that we've been talking about, that spirit of meekness, forgiveness, generosity to others. And the pure the heart, get this, the pure the spiritual vision. Remember, it's blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. The stakes are high and the rewards are unfathomable. So purity of heart is hard. It is not something that comes easily. It's not something that comes at the beginning of a Christian walk. It's something we have to work ourselves to develop into. And there's a lot of emptying of self to make room for purity to fill us. And if we don't do the emptying, folks, we'll never get the filling. It's just not going to work. Let's go back to John chapter 15. Earlier in the same chapter of John, John 15, Jesus teaches us how to be clean or pure. And it's no accident that he explains this in the context of pruning and removing things that are not necessary. That's a way to become clean, to become pure. The parable or part of the parable of the vine and the branches, John, uh, Jonathan, John 15, 2 to 4. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And, and that word there, clean, is the same as the word pure. And it continues, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Well, I was thinking, when you prune a vine, you take away anything that hinders its growth. It looks like you killed it when you're finished. Yeah, it looks pretty. It's like, yeah, that, that's got no potential for anything. Uh, but wait, it does, because it is forced to grow. 
and it's forced to grow in the right ways. And that's why Jesus says, abide in me. You want a pure heart? Have Jesus abide in you. That's what he says. And, and, be, and, and because he abides in the Father. And we have to put ourselves in that place. A branch can't bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. We, are, we can't be pure in heart unless we're abiding in Jesus. So our next question is, how does being pure in heart fit into the cumulative steps of the Beatitudes? And as we said before, to be pure in heart isn't, isn't for the faint of heart, because it shows up late in this list because it's an advanced step that takes a lot of effort and intention. And you won't be able to take that next step of a peacemaker we're going to talk about if your heart isn't first pure, or as pure as we can make it. We start with humbly knowing who we are, and then we progress on to embrace the grieving of our lives. Remember the mourning. And a meek and teachable life begins to develop here, and that teachability feeds our hungering for righteousness. Feed on the righteousness of God naturally develops a merciful and compassionate outlook. So we're going back through each of the Beatitudes and seeing how you build from one to the next one to the next one. And now, you know, we've talked about this uh, merciful and compassionate outlook, and now here we are. All of these things that, Jonathan, you and Julie talked about just now— all of these things combine to weed out our selfish and evil intentions and steer us towards a pure heart. That's the key. We now need to grow into such a heart so we can acquiesce to God's will and to God's will alone. And when you think about it, you think about being pure in heart, you think, well, boy, that's not something that's talked about a lot in the scriptures. I mean, you know, Jesus is always saying love one another and be kind and be forgiving and be, and you know, God's grace. You know, pure in heart doesn't seem to come up a lot. Well, look at where it does come up and how powerful it is. Purity of heart is a central learning objective of our discipleship walk, as evidenced by 1 Timothy 1, verses 5 and 6. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. From some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. So the goal of our instruction. Okay, here's the goal. Wait for it, because here it comes. The goal of our instruction is love. Yes, that's what everybody always says. From what? From a pure heart. You see how having that pure heart is such a critical part of actually being a true follower of Christ. We can't follow Jesus unless we are continuing to purify our hearts. And look, this is like an impossibility for imperfect Christians, but it doesn't mean we can't make our hearts more and more pure. We can't go through the cleansing process and the forgiveness process and putting things in order process and redoing and retrying because this is what's required of us, having as pure a heart as we possibly can. And remember, the blessed result of a pure heart said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. While magnificent to see God, this certainly is no easy task. Look at 1 John 3, 2 to 3. I'm going to be changing the words he and him to Jesus for clarity as I read these verses. Be loved. Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when Jesus appears, we will be like Jesus because we will see Jesus just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. So, you know, it's talking about we're children of God, but we're going to see him as he is. And it's like, wow, what a great, incredible privilege this is. And then it ends. Everyone has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself, pure in heart, just as our Lord is pure. So 
put it in order and realize purity of heart is hard, it's difficult, it's a task that is going to bring you to failure many times, but those failures can bring us steps closer. Never, ever, ever stop striving to make your heart more and more pure in a godly way. Never stop trying. Jonathan, becoming one who can be blessed, what do we have? To be pure in heart is to have removed malice, anger, resentment, jealousy, and the like from our deepest intentions. It is to live life on a level that few can understand, but that everyone can trust. Purity of heart resides in the domain of those who are strong in Christ and whose lives are willing sacrifices for the sake of the will of God. The blessed effects of a pure heart are experienced by many, even though the maturity of a pure heart is only experienced by a few. So think about that. The incredible positive effects of a a heart that's becoming more and more pure, it just ripples out to all of the people around you. But the experience of having a pure heart, one that becomes more and more pure, more and more Christ-like, is not experienced by many because it's so, so difficult. We want to be those who are striving to have a pure heart because that is what Jesus is telling us we need to do. So we can see that purity of heart is no simple matter that can be wished into existence. Striving long and hard produces this blessing. With the first six Beatitudes in place, what is the final step? Where do these Beatitudes culminate? Well, in the entertainment world, you have a grand finality, and in sports, you have all the all-important final period. In both cases, the result of the event hangs in the balance until the very end. And with the Beatitudes, it's actually similar. Jesus is teaching us all of this development for a very specific and completely world-changing reason. He's teaching us this for a world-changing reason. The seventh beatitude is the great conclusion. Jonathan, what is it? Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Oh, and I love when that happens. Do you remember what that's called? That's a hapex legomenon. It, it's a Greek word. It means once said. So it's only once in the Bible. We got to take a look at that. Well, the word for peacemaker means pacify, appeasement, peaceful submission. So a peacemaker, one who actually brings peace, okay? To be a peacemaker is to be a reflection of Jesus and break down barriers between those who are at odds so they cannot just coexist, but they can be fully integrated within God's plan. All of the previous Beatitudes have directed us to see clearly, to think righteously, and to act appropriately. This, be a peacemaker, this is an uncommon place to be. Being a peacemaker enables us to truly appreciate what Jesus came to do as well as work alongside him in this amazing privilege. On episode 1025 called, Should We Be Peacemakers? It asks the question, are we peacemaking or just peacekeeping? And another great question, how far should we be reaching out to make peace without it violating our Christian principles? Search 1025 at christianquestions.com or on the Christian Questions app. And that's a big difference. There's an enormous difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. And Jesus is undoubtedly saying, 
be one who makes peace. And we're going to get into what he actually means by that in a moment. First, let's go to Jesus, the peacemaker from Moments with the Savior by Ken Geyer. He was a peacemaker, coming to earth to reconcile a prodigal world to the Father's love. These are the blessings of a Christ-like character. Now that was such a short statement. Coming to the world to reconcile the, the prodigal children of the world to get back to God's love. That's the greatest peacemaking mission the world can have ever known. Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker for all time for that very reason. Romans 5, 18 and 19 very plainly illustrates this. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. So you have in this verse the clarity of the peacemaking of Jesus. One man brought sin into the world, Jesus eradicates sin. One man brings everybody down a very specific path, and one man, Christ Jesus, brings everybody up a whole brand new path. That is peacemaking because it is bringing the world back into peace and harmony with God. When Adam started, he was in peace and harmony with God. He didn't end that way. When Jesus is finished, the world will be in peace and harmony with God. He will have made peace between mankind and God Almighty. That is the great peacemaking work of Jesus. But there's more than that. Jesus' peacemaking work for us includes helping us, frankly, get over ourselves. Peacemaking takes down barriers. Jesus removed all of our barriers between us and also our barriers that keep us from God. And this is, 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 is shown to us very plainly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, stop right there. Jesus is showing himself as a peacemaker, being brought near by his blood. For he himself is our peace. See, I told you, peacemaker. Again, it's showing Jesus as a peacemaker. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. See, there again, Jesus is the peacemaker. Now let's go on to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Again, again, there's showing the work of Jesus' peacemaking between us and God. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. Again, stop again. Jonathan, you see how powerful this is. Everything you say shows us how Jesus' peacemaking has worked with those who are faithfully following him. And are of God's household. And what better conclusion can you come to remember the scripture that the beatitude blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of god how does this scripture end because the saints are of god's household you're of his household you have become sons of god peacemaking accomplished that's jesus working within us do we respond to his peacemaking efforts with us or do we rather do it our own way? Think about that, because we have to be very clear on this. Okay, so Jonathan, enough about us. What's uh, enough about Jesus? Well, you know, you really can't say enough about Jesus, but, but let's put Jesus aside for a moment. What about us? How do we apply the sense of being empty as a true disciple of Christ in relation to peacemaking? Okay, so the emptiness. What does emptiness have to do with becoming this peacemaker like Jesus? Well, 
having been reconciled to God through Christ, requires us to be emptied of our wills. Because if you're reconciled with God, to God through Christ, you're, you're thinking on a different level. So we're emptied of our wills, sin-driven emotions, and our human aspirations. Let's look at Hebrews 12, 14 to 15. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, which means set apart for a holy purpose, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it may be defiled. And we talked extensively about having that root of bitterness in episode 1212 called, Am I Too Bitter to Be Better? So if this is an issue for you, definitely go back and listen to that one and use the corresponding CQ Rewind show notes where we list every scripture quoted and much of the commentary so you can read along while you listen. But one huge lesson is that we want to focus only on God's peace. And you talked about it before, Rick, about sin-driven emotions. Our own emotions, I think, can all too quickly get in the way of our trying to peacemake now. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we, we want to be careful that whatever peacemaking we're doing now, we're doing in a very, very, very godly way. Because we have the work of peacemaking now for the ultimate work of peacemaking later. And that's really where we're going to next. Okay, the next scripture is going to describe what our true responsibilities are are now as well as later. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. And think of these words as Jonathan's reading them in relation to being a peacemaker. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So to be an ambassador of Christ, first of all, when you're an ambassador, what are you? You are a representative of the authorities from someplace else. And when, as an ambassador, you are never supposed to represent your own point of view. You always represent their point of view. So you are a spokesman. You are the, the, the physical representative. And that's what this verse calls us, ambassadors for Christ. And it says it talks about reconci- reconciliation. So to be an ambassador of reconciliation, here's what it is. It's to be emptied of any self-will and filled with the mission the mission that we are ambassadors for, to represent God through Christ and the gospel and the kingdom and all of those things, is so it's to be filled with the mission of God's will for all of humanity. Now, normally when we're dealing with each other, peacemaking involves a lot of compromise. Compromise takes a little away from both parties as they make concessions, and that's how the empty concept we've been talking about might apply in the sense of giving up or emptying one's rights in the name of building a peace but we're talking here about really a higher level of peacemaking. This is in the future when the faithful followers of Jesus will participate in bringing all the resurrected mankind back in harmony with God. There's not going to be any compromise because everyone is going to have to rise up to the level of what God requires for eternity in order to continue living in his righteous kingdom. So it's kind of God's way or no way. Right? And of course, look back at the Garden of Eden. Look back at the Garden of Eden and how God set the rules, and it was God's way, and the minute that they, they stepped outside of those rules, they were banished from that garden. What, what this is, and you say, well, that's not fair. What are you, kidding? We're talking about eternal life. Think about eternal. How long have you lived? How long did you live plus your parents and your grandparents and your great-parents, great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents and your great-great-great-grandparents? Now, multiply that by a thousand. 
you're starting to just, 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 just take a quick, quick look at the very beginning stages of eternity. For a life like that, it does require to live God's way. So the peacemaking is bringing us into harmony with God so he can give us a blessed, beautiful, fulfilled, wonderful, satisfying, abundant, eternal life. That's what it's all about. No, you don't compromise with God. You don't say, well, God, you know, I know you want me to do everything exactly your way in the kingdom, but I want to keep my own secret thoughts to myself. Nope, sorry, doesn't work. Satan did that. Look where it got him. So, you know, we just have to keep ourselves in line with him. And our job as reconcilers is to show the world through our experience now that we can work toward bending our wills toward God. Julie, what's next? All right, well, let's talk about how peacemaking fits into the cumulative steps of the Beatitudes. And back in that episode 1025, I referenced you liken the Beatitudes to rungs on a ladder of development. It's kind of what we've been doing here with the picture of cumulative stepping stones. So being a peacemaker was pictured as a high rung on the ladder. And you said this, here's the quote, with all the previous steps of development, we can now see clearly, think righteously and act appropriately. Most of us don't climb this high, even though we may hang out on a different rung for a while, but being at this level enables us to get a view of what Jesus came to do, as well as the privilege of stepping up to the next rung. This is an uncommon place to be. The first seven rungs are things we're working on to become a peacemaker, and the remaining rungs are the results of becoming that peacemaker. So the peacemaker is the actual key to this whole thing. And so let me just, just go through the, the, the steps again. You're going through the previous beatitude. Humility, embracing grief, teachableness, hungering for righteousness, and being merciful are all training grounds for mastering purity of heart. With this purity of heart, being a peacemaker and representing the peace of God through Christ to all men is the very thing we are called to become. So the peacemaker is what Jesus is focusing us on very plainly. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So in this scripture, there, there, there's a lot of keys in here. We don't have time for all of these keys, but the idea of why don't we have to be anxious? Because God will supply us with what we need. And it says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You can't be a peacemaker for God unless you have the peace of God. And you can't have the peace of God unless you've gotten, get, gotten yourself into the place where you can have that pure heart where it can grow and develop without being hindered. So you can see the Beatitudes are building up to this incredible thing, and the peacemaking changes the world. Jesus came to change the world, but he called the true, his true followers, the disciples, to work with him to really, truly finish the work of changing the world. We are ultimately to be peacemakers. Jonathan, be, becoming one who can be blessed, what's our final statement here? To be a peacemaker and represent the peace of God planned for all of humanity is to be Christ-like. While we cannot perfectly attain this status here and now, we can certainly go through the beatitude development process and grow towards it. So this is something we must work on. This is something that we really want to keep in the forefront of our mind. Am I learning to be a peacemaker? Well, now look, you don't start there. You start with blessed are the, 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 the poor in spirit. 
okay? And then you go through the grieving and through all of the other steps. But learning to be a peacemaker is what learning to be a disciple of Jesus is all about. And here's a great scripture to sum up why this is such an important study. 2 Corinthians 3.18 from the New Living Translation. But we Christians have no veil over our faces. We can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him. So Rick and Jonathan, that's the whole point of the Beatitudes. It's to be so much like Jesus that we reflect him and the Father. But I noticed that you're not including as a beatitude the next scripture in Jesus's sermon about being persecuted. There's more rungs to that ladder. So let's talk about that. Okay, there's more blesseds in this. And a lot of times we look at these next two scriptures, Matthew 5, 10, and 11, and we say, well, you know, these are, these are other beatitudes. These are the training ground of the Beatitudes, but the blessedness, the being supremely blessed is part of being in training because you're working on the Beatitudes. Jonathan, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when we are persecuted, we are called blessed. Why? Because the persecutions and the insults and the evil and the gossip and all of those things that come to us as we develop these beatitudes are God's way of testing our focus and our maturity. So to be a peacemaker is to be among the most privileged of all humanity. To embrace being persecuted for Christ's sake is to embrace becoming a peacemaker. So we have these seven Beatitudes and then these testing grounds that follow them immediately following in Matthew chapter 5. Folks, the point of this two-part series is very, very simple. Take the Beatitudes and realize Jesus is teaching us a progressive lesson. You build at the beginning with humility and you build one upon the other, upon the other, upon the other. You get to the point of being pure in heart and that's really hard to do. That's the step before being a peacemaker, which is ultimately being like Christ. These are not easy, and they're not supposed to be. But when you embark on these things as a follower of Christ, you are blessed. You are supremely blessed by God. Don't stop. Don't stop. Think about it. Folks, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts, please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, next week, can faith take me from failure to victory? I think you want to know the answer to that one. And we'll talk about it next week. <laughs>